to be equal citizens. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, this is not a new issue that our movement for LGBTQ freedom and equality from earliest days has encountered resistance from institutions and individuals who have opposed our inclusion and our equality, sometimes just from personal discomfort with who we are, but sometimes because in good faith they learned certain ideas about human sexuality and certain ideas about about gender roles. You know, father knows best, a uh, woman's place is in the, ki- in the kitchen, taking care of children, not having a job. I mean, some of these traditional ideas have religious framing for some people. Certainly, we have seen the Supreme Court, and the case I'll refer to here, the, the Bowers versus Hardwick case, was decided by the Supreme Court back in 1986. This was a case about whether there could be state criminal laws against our intimate adult relationships. It was a case that came out of Georgia that had such a law that specifically uh, targeted same-sex intimate conduct among adults. And oddly enough, the U.S. Supreme Court cited the Bible, among other non-legal texts, to justify allowing that state law to stand. In other words, referring to religious ideas to justify a criminal law against some members of our society. Now, there was a vigorous dissent in that case, and the vigorous dissent ultimately came to be the law of the land 17 years later in a case that Lambda Legal litigated. But there we were. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Easter Seals Walk With Me on Saturday, October 24th at 12 p.m., streaming online. Easter Seals is looking for volunteers to participate in their virtual fundraiser in support of their services for people with disabilities and their families. Again, that's Easter Seals Walk With Me on Saturday, October 24th at 12 p.m., streaming online. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. On today's show. In Germany, uh, it was five to six years between Hitler's rise and election and seizure of power and Kastalna. So it takes a certain amount of time for the rhetoric to engender a kind of attitude that allows people to tolerate and participate in mass violence. Rwanda, I think it's 1990, 1991. When you first find, start to find the extreme rhetoric of cockroaches and rats. And so there appears in countries to be a period of several years where people get used to thinking of the, the targeted groups as, as being appropriate objects of mass violence. A conversation on fascism as a tactic and the history of fascism in the United States. Our guest is Yale philosophy professor Jason Stanley. He is the author of the book, How Fascism Works. He joins us next on Letters and Politics. Welcome to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jesserich. I think many of us, in thinking about the history of fascism, think of Nazi Germany, Mussolini's Italy, and Franco's post-Civil War Spain. We think, perhaps, of fascism as an adjective. It's a fascist state, or a fascist movement, or even a fascist party. But our guest today, Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University, argues that fascism is a tactic, and that fascism exists even in a non-fascist state. And he points to the history of American racism as our own version of fascism. Jason Stanley is the author of the book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. And he now joins us via Skype. Jason Stanley, it is my very good pleasure to welcome you to this program. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you, Mitch. It's good to have you. What role does history play in fascism? The role of history in fascism is critical. Fascism always starts out with a mythic history. Now, all nationalism starts out with a mythic imagined history. Benedict Anderson reminds us. All nationalism creates this myth of national identity. But not all nationalism creates the particular kind of myth of national identity one finds in fascist movements. In fascist movements, one finds the idea 
that the the mythic national past was glorious that in the in the mythic past the the people of the nation ruled over others uh, it was patriarchal men were men women were home raising the next generation and so it's crucial for fascist movements to control the narrative of history to create nostalgia for this past that never was to to create this feeling of great loss that's how orban came to power with trianon by talking about a greater hungary when hungary had so much more land and they, they, they pointed to to the the fight against the ottoman empire yes because the well now that's what uh, that's what now that's what orban is doing huh. because orban wants to position hungary as the defender of christian europe so now orban presents an alternative history he goes back even further to the time at which supposedly hungary was the great defender of christian europe against muslim the muslim ottoman empire which of course uh, includes the fact that the ottoman empire was in fact quite diverse and many other historical facts also makes me think of benito mussolini um and his his you know his feelings towards the ancient roman empire absolutely you always need to go back to this mythic past uh you you sort of create a vision of the mythic past to connect your your movement with that and then you promise to make the present like that again you know we we find this creation of nostalgia so fascism weaponizes certain emotions to control politics you you write about this use of history and fascism with with the united states concerning the civil war tell me more about that Yes, well, we find that, you know, we're having these battles about monuments. Monuments were, of course, erected, Civil War monuments were, of course, erected much later, way after the Civil War, at a time when it was important to create a certain myth about the past, to to set the Jim Crow laws on an apparently firm foundation. So the idea being that the, the, uh, the Civil War was fought to prevent northern incursion and uh, and black American corruption, uh, which led, which supposedly led to the end of Reconstruction, so there was this mythic past in the South uh, that justified racial discrimination, and we have that uh, repeatedly employed. You 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 go back to uh, you go throughout the South to, for instance, university campuses and. Their odes to this, like, uh, to this mythological struggle against the enemy. And when you hear people in the South, some people in the South speak about that, about that struggle, they speak about it in ultranationalist terms. Uh, so they speak about it as, you know, well, this will, even when they deny it's about slavery, they, they say it's about the homeland being invaded by foreigners, which is ultranationalism. It's kind of, uh, now, it'd be anachronistic to call the Confederacy fascist, but for me, fascism is a sliding scale, and there are many elements of fascism in the Confederacy. There's the white nationalism, uh, and there's this ultranationalism, of course, and sort of macho patriarchy. Is there American fascism? Oh, there's been American fascism uh, as long as there's been European fascism, and you know, the Ku Klux Klan is hard to distinguish ideologically from the European fascist movements, the 1920s. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan was harshly inveighing against labor unions. They they were spreading the conspiracy theory that labor unions were run by Jews in order to foment race wars, which was very similar to what Hitler was saying in the 1920s already, even as early as the 1920s, about, about Senegalese troops in uh, the Rhineland. He was saying the Jewish plot to get black black men raping uh, white German women. Um, there, there's a huge overlap. Nancy McLean in her Behind the Mask of Chivalry book from the 90s documents the overlap in ideology between the 20s Ku Klux Klan and 
the national socialists and the European fascist movements. And there was a tremendous amount of influence between the two. So, so the, the Hitler is deeply affected by uh, the 1924 immigration, by American developments such as the 1924 Immigration Act. Hitler praises the 1924 Immigration Act in Mein Kampf uh, he, and in his second book. He says it helps create a national state of just the sort that he wants in Germany. So, uh, you know, Hitler, the Nuremberg Laws, as my colleague Jim Jim Whitman has shown in his book, uh, uh, Hitler's American Model, the Nuremberg Laws were based on the anti-miscegenation laws of the Jim Crow era. So, you know, uh, as I document in my book, the right to work laws uh, that we now have as as law of the land for public unions. They're based in this harsh anti-union rhetoric of the sort that you find in Mein Kampf. How do you connect that? How do you connect the struggle today over this issue of quote-unquote right to work to to what Hitler wrote in, in Mein Kampf? Well, trade unions have always been the enemy of fascism. Trade unions connect us across material interests. So, you know, a trade union, we all have aging parents. We all like weekends off. Trade unions connect us across our racial differences. Fascist ideology tries to connect us along our racial identity or our ethnic identity or our gender identity. So it needs to smash any dimension of identity that would make us feel uh, like co-citizens because we share those interests. Like, and that's what trade unions do. In a trade union, when it's functioning correctly, you know, a woman and a man, uh, an African-American and a white American, a Hispanic American and a non-Hispanic American are going to get together to plot how to get $2 an hour more. And that is a fundamental threat. And it's also a fundamental threat to, the, to an authoritarian leader because a group of people mobilizing together for their own interests is a potential power source that can invade against uh, the dictates of a party in power or a leader. And so labor unions, you know, it's not for nothing that the poem on the, in the Holocaust Museum by Martin Niemöller says, first they came for the socialists, but I, and then they came for the trade unionists. Multiculturalism is, is a threat to the fascists. Absolutely, because fascism is based on an ultranationalism based primarily on ethnic identity. So multiculturalism, multi-ethnic democracy is anathema. And trade unions, trade unions make us feel economically more secure. Economic insecurity is of aid to, to fascist government because when we feel, in Hannah Arendt's words, atomized, then we feel fearful and we need some other identity. We need, we need, we need help from someone. And then we look to demagogues. What, what did Hannah Arendt mean by atomized? She meant that fascism thrives when individuals feel alone, when they feel unsupported and fearful. And they feel that there's nothing there, that they can't trust their fellow citizens, they can't trust institutions, and they're fearful about their economic well-being. She means they're individually atomized, and then they look for an artificial identity, a fake identity, like an ethnic identity, like race. Race is a construction. So the fascist leader offers people a fake identity, one that does not address their material needs or their material interests. And ultimately, the fascist leader offers themselves and loyalty to to that leader as their ultimate identity. I have covered some of these far-right groups, and one term I constantly hear, especially, uh, really, it's another term for multiculturalism, and that would be cultural Marxism. What does that mean? Cultural Marxism has a long history. Uh, in one sense, it means Jewish. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, it, it does. Means- it means Jewish. So it's really important for people to read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to understand what's happening around them. Uh, so when 
when uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion says that Jews are behind Marxism, liberalism, capitalism, and you know femi- feminism as well. You find that trope as well. Uh, homosexuality. That Jews are behind these movements that seek equality for religious, ethnic, and sexual minorities. And cultural Marxism is used as a smear for movements that seek equality for minority groups. So you find people using cultural Marxism to talk about uh, movements for uh, gender equality, movements for uh, gay, great gay rights, uh, movements for uh, for to recognize traditionally oppressed groups like African-Americans, you find them tarred as cultural Marxists. And the idea is that it's kind of a conspiracy theory. The idea is what they're really seeking is to take power. Where, where did these Protocols of the Elders of Zion come from? Protocols of the Elders of Zion originated in a science fic, a work of fiction in the mid-1850s, I believe. I talk about this in my detail, the history in my book, How Fascism Works. Uh, and then they were taken up in 1905 by a St. Petersburg newspaper uh, as a forgery. So uh, initially there was a discussion in, in the, uh, in, I think it's Maurice Jolie in his book. It was a discussion between, uh, uh, between, uh, an, an, I forget exactly the two characters, but uh, an evil person and a good person and the evil person is talking about using liberalism as a way to to gain power. And so in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, this, is, this speech is put in the mouths of the so-called uh, Elders of Zion that is sort of prominent sort of a shadowy conspiracy of global Jews and the idea is they're, they're going to spread liberalism. They're going to use the media they're going to use education to spread liberalism, to spread freedom. And once you spread liberalism or Marxism to the dominant group, then they will willingly give up their power to you. We are in conversation with Joseph Stanley. He is the Jacob Orowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, author of the book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and them. Jason Stanley, I found that, that explanation of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion uh, interesting, so so thank you for, for doing that. I, I don't want to lose sight of the American Civil War, because you do write extensively about the American Civil War uh, in this book, and in particular about W.E.B. Du Bois and, and his work called Black Reconstruction. Can, can you tell me about that? There may be no more important book to read right now than Black Reconstruction in the American context. Black Reconstruction was published in 1935 at a time at which it was widely believed that the Reconstruction era, the era at which uh, black Americans in the South were freely allowed to vote and indeed voted en masse and occupied many offices from senator, from the Senate to the House to state legislature. The Reconstruction Era was brought to an end because of a myth of black corruption. So this was widely taught in universities and schools. And even I, I'm 48 years old, and even I I learned that Reconstruction came to an end because black Americans ran corrupt governments in the South. Du Bois destroys this myth. And he shows that, in fact, Reconstruction ended because... White, poor white laborers in the South and poor black laborers were starting to band together in a labor movement. And this unified the interests of wealthy whites in the South and, uh, and wealthy northern and white industrialists who were threatened by this labor movement. And in this book, in Black Reconstruction, which eventually, by the late 1960s, in the late 1960s, was finally recognized to be the true account of the end of Reconstruction, of what happened during Reconstruction. In this book, Du Bois simply gives us so many of the tools we need to understand fascism. He begins the book by saying, you know, in the beginning, 
God created this world and it was wonderful and everyone got along. And then he threw a black man in the midst and fascism broke out. So he explicitly uses the term fascism for American racism. Uh, so he talks in the book about the psychological wages of whiteness, about which, which is the crucial thing to explain why poor whites will vote against their own material interests in accord with rich whites against people uh, like against poor black Americans with whom they share material interests. So it's a big mystery. Why will poor whites vote to like slash their own health coverage? Why will poor whites vote to slash their own uh, food stamps and government benefits uh, when it hurts them? It hurts themselves. They're hurting themselves. And Du Bois explains this, this by this concept of the psychological wages of whiteness. Just being white gives you a kind of priceless dignity. And that's what the fascist politician does. The fascist politician prompt makes this... They say, um, you have a special dignity that non-whites simply cannot have. And that dignity comes from being just from being white. And equality threatens that dignity. So equality will make you lose the psychological wages of whiteness. So not only does Du Bois there give us a lot of the tools we need to understand why people throw their own interests under the bus, their own material interests under the bus. He gives us a lot of the tools to understand fascism. We are in conversation with philosopher Jason.
Today Show. In Germany, uh, it was five to six years. raises money in order to keep it alive. There's been other broadcasters that have been associated with school districts and stuff like that that are also public broadcasters that go back uh, a bit farther than KPFA. But since 1949, a radio station founded by pacifists, uh, understanding the need to have a radio station uh, that that is non-commercial and in the hands of the public, that is part of the uh, common good, part of the commons in general. Uh, That's what this radio station has always been about. And that's why we ask you for your support so that we can remain on the air, especially during these really critical and important times. Now, because we are uh, broadcasting during a time of a pandemic, uh, usually we haven't been able to actually offer any thank you gifts uh, for your donations. But that, th- th- there's a little twist to all that has been brought to my attention. We are now offering everyone who donates, regardless of the amount that you donate, whether it be $25 or $50, $100, $1,000 even. All we ask is that you donate what is according to your own means and what you think we are deserving of. But for everyone who donates, regardless the amount, we are going to provide to you online um, a collection of KPFA events and historical related interviews, sort of as a political history collection. And it's called Don't Believe the Hype. And you are going to get about a dozen or so events, KPFA events or or interviews, including this entire hour long interview that I had with Jason Stanley uh, for any amount of contribution that you can make to this radio station. And what we will do with your contribution is we will uh, get your email and then we will send you. Uh, a link uh, after you made the the contribution we'll send you the link of where you can get all of these events and we are talking about Richard Wolf and the KPFA event that he did just this year uh, just before the pandemic uh, called understanding socialism our event with Cornell West uh, Craig Pallast uh, Rick Perlstein on Reaganland and the Invisible uh, Bridge. Some of these are interviews, as Rick Perlstein is. Uh, Jason Stanley, the conversation you're listening to now about how fascism uh, works. Chris Carlson on the hidden San Francisco, a lost guide, to, a guide to lost landscapes, unsung heroes, and radical histories. David K. Johnston. You know, David K. Johnston is somebody who's been on my mind a lot lately, and he's a part of this political history pack. Uh, David K. Johnston, in the beginning of the Trump administration, uh, came out with the book, The Makings of Donald J. Trump. And David K. Johnston, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter, really good about, um, you know, uh, the tax codes and sort of really technical things. But he covered for 30 years Donald Trump. And when I think back upon when he came to KPFA to do that event, or even what you will find in his book, is this is, uh, he, he nailed it. He nailed right in 2017 exactly what Donald Trump was going to be like in his presidency. And it just was extremely prescient when I think back. Some people take issue with David K. Johnston because he's also uh, a very strong, uh, he had very strong opinions about uh, Russia meddling, uh, allegedly meddling in the uh, 2016 election. So, some, you know, that's been a turnoff to some people, not everyone, but some people. But boy, 
when you look at what David K. Johnston said and wrote about Donald Trump, it, he, he hit the nail right on the head. Uh, also a part of this collection is Blair Amani uh, about the great migration and the black American experience. Uh, Darja Mel and Antonio Yuhas about the end of ICE bearing witness and finding meaning on the path of climate disruption. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on the history of the Second Amendment. Uh, Rebecca Solnit, uh, an event she did with us a few years ago. Richard Walker in the shadow of the tech of the San Francisco Bay Area. Zachary Carter, this was a show that I did um, in which Zachary Carter, I think, wrote one of the best biographies uh, that I've read recently about anyone, but this one's about John Maynard Keynes. And it's about more than just John Maynard Keynes. It's also about the theory of money and how money works and, 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 and how money, how John Maynard Keynes saw money as a tool, not money that set the, the, the terms and what we can do, but whatever we want to do, whatever we can do, we can afford according to John Maynard Keynes. And this idea of looking at money as a tool, which is very important considering our current circumstances. Um, and then there's a whole lot more uh, in this pack. Everyone gets it. We'll send it to you in an email uh, for a pledge of $25 or $50 or $100, whatever it is. And you get this collection of events that has been deemed don't believe the hype kpfa's political history collection fall 2020 fund drive so the phone number to make the contribution is 1-800-439-5732 1-800-439-5732 and online at kpfa.org also want to add that we are actually things you know we're starting to figure things out a little bit here we are actually also offering jason stanley's book for a pledge of eighty dollars so if you wanted to get jason stanley's book on how fascism works uh here's here's a great opportunity to do it and also support this radio station for a pledge of eighty dollars so again the number one eight hundred four three nine five seven three two one eight hundred four three nine five seven three two or pledge online at kpfa.org but you know fundamentally what we're really doing is asking you to donate to kpfa so to support this radio station uh, again we need to have these fun drives uh, you know once every three months or so uh, in order to keep this radio station uh, operating in order to keep it on the air and as we are currently witnessing so many different uh, journalism and media outlets right now folding during this pandemic. It's alarming as, as we are watching this occur right in front of our eyes uh, right now. It's important that we support media and it's important that we support independent media. Democracy relies on it. Um, if you lose your media, if you lose you know, a sense of professionalization in the sense of, you know, we're going to make sure we get the story right. We're going to make sure the facts are right. We're going to make sure we're, we're telling the truth, give diverse perspectives for sure, but make sure that the story is accurate and that you aren't lying to people. The more, the more of those that you lose, the more into fascism you will slide because that's what fascism does with the truth. It's malleable. It's changeable. You can, the truth is whatever fits the fascist uh, agenda. And that's a very scary place to be going into. And that feels like, in a way, that is what we are sliding into. It doesn't mean we get there all the way. It doesn't mean that we're all the way there now. But my God, when you have a president right now saying that, basically saying he's not probably going to accept the election result. And, you know, yeah, that could just be crazy Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, that's that's my thought, right? Yeah, that's a great, there goes Donald Trump again saying saying crazy things. But th this is this is actually serious, you know. I mean, he he may lose the election if he loses the election, and you know he may have no choice but to leave. That that's all possible. But when you have the actual sitting president of the United States saying that he's not really prepared to accept the results because he thinks it's going to be rigged, it's uh, and it's just alarming. And and then couple that with watching Senate Republicans really breaking their own rules after holding up Merrick Garland, uh, Don, uh, Barack Obama's final pick for the Supreme Court, who never got a confirmation hearing in the Senate, never moved while... The
Welcome to Sprouts, radio from the grassroots, a weekly program that showcases radio production by independent community media. We bring local stories to a national audience, produced at a different location every week. I just want to hug my daughter. Trouble don't last always. This is, won't go on forever. The whole fate of mankind is really tied with one thread. We are Emma and Max Strebel, a sister and brother team, independently producing the What's Inside podcast in Sonoma County. Today on Sprouts, we hear short vignettes from people around the world as they process their experiences during the COVID lockdown. In this half-hour segment, you will hear a compilation of episodes from our daily podcast. So tonight was an interesting night. Um, actually, started around five o'clock. I started to hear some commotion outside, and I looked across the street, and the family across the street was—they were putting up balloons in the yard. I think they were using straws to put the balloons in the lawn. So there were a bunch of balloons in the lawn and then they started putting balloons up on their house and then they strung those big puffy gold letters with air in them and it said happy birthday and I thought oh that's really sweet and then this girl came out wearing a white dress and a crown and they had um the letter one and the letter five so I figured it was her quinceanera and soon afterwards cars started coming by and honking and they had signs on the car that said Olive happy birthday and they had balloons and streamers and uh, noisemakers kids hanging out of the cars and everybody around her had masks on, but she didn't have a mask on. And the cars went around the block a couple of times. And she stood on the lawn in her high heels and her short white dress and her little crown and just cried. She cried and cried and cried. And I cried too. So I watched her and cried, and she cried, watching all her friends go by in the car. And uh, I went inside and I wrote a card to her, and I put in a check for $20. And I wrote it out to Olive, because that's what the sign said on the car, so I'm assuming that was her name. And uh, I went, put my mask on, And I went across the street and I stretched my arm out and I handed the card to the dad. She was already inside, but she saw me through the door. And uh, and that was that. Thanks for joining us. During this time of social distancing, we're connecting to people from around the world to share personal stories that reveal our universal experience. This is what's inside. So, I've been thinking about what was the hardest change in this whole situation for me. It seems to be the same for everybody. We all had to make the same changes most of the changes they don't really bother me they they're not a big deal they're doable for me you know shelter in place you know I don't really mind having to wear a mask every time I step out of the house I don't mind washing my hands all the time 
you know all those is small at least to me they seem small changes but there's one change that it really bothers me it makes me really sad and that's the social distancing I just want to hug my daughter really hug my daughter really hug her embrace her she's pregnant and the last time we hugged was over three months ago when she told me that she was pregnant that was the last time we hugged and you know I miss hugging my friends I miss hugging my loved ones you see I do believe in the power of a hug it's very healing it's very comforting it's very powerful and the thought that this powerful comforting gesture could actually harm somebody it blows my mind I mean it really I want to touch my daughter's belly and talk to my grandchild I want to tell my grandchild how much I already love her and I can't wait to meet her I can't so that's that's been hard that's been hard I just want to hug everybody I just want to be hugged thanks for joining us in response to the rise of the COVID pandemic which has forced us to socially distance these are reflections on being alone together this is what's inside I've been very emotional during this time. A lot of it has to do with COVID. Having an African-American son during a pandemic, and especially with this Black Lives Matter movement, you know what I'm saying? Like, I've always been diverse. I've always seen people for character over color. I've always given people a fair chance and it's just so crazy that people are still hateful in the world and it's just so much hate. I just really thought that we would move forward, but it just seems like every day we are moving backwards. And, you know, I'm all for the Black Lives Matter movement, but the looting and stuff is just a bit much because it puts people who don't mean to be in harm's way in harm's way like you know and and it's not so much as happening here in mississippi but it's not anything that i want to look at right now especially with me being pregnant like i'm literally having to fight the things that i see and try to just keep a clear mind and just think positive because it's literally so much going on in the world right now during this time i've been spending a lot of time with my family my immediate family and just loving on them and appreciating every day with them. Like I look at life totally different since all of this has taken place. And I'm still grateful to have an income, to still have a healthy family. I have a daughter that's one years old right now and I can't even like take her outside like I want to and just let her see things like she literally has to go to school and come home because me and her dad are essential workers. So she was still having to go to daycare and even that kind of had me a little paranoid. But you know, you have to do what you have to do because you still have to provide for your family. And you have some people that don't have jobs right now. So you literally have to be appreciative. This pandemic has taught me to just be appreciative of 
the things I have, the small things, just being able to still pick up the phone and reach out to my loved ones because it's literally so many people that have died from COVID. I have a, a mom, a praying mom, and she has taught me to be a praying mom as well and just be a woman of faith and just have faith during this time. So I'm just trying to stay uplifted and keep a positive mind and just stay calm. I have to keep myself grounded and rooted. And I also have to remind myself, like, trouble don't last always. This is won't go on forever. You know, th this is not the end. This is only the beginning of something great. Like, I, I keep looking towards the future and, like, you know, there it may be dark right now. We may all be in a dark place. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in listening to more voices, you can hear more of our daily podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram at What's Inside Podcast. This is What's Inside. I feel like I have led a very, very hectic and busy life. And I have you know, found the time to do something that I really wanted to do for the longest time and, you know, wasn't really getting time for it. It's just a lot of introspection because, you know, one thing that coronavirus has shown is in some ways, the whole humanity is ultimately connected regardless of how individualistic we are, how unique we consider ourselves. The whole fate of mankind is really tied with one thread and that is our collective existence. You know, we just read about how almost every country is undergoing the same kind of challenges. And, and if you talk about individuals' challenges, even those are somewhat connected. I mean, yes, there are varying degrees of challenges and problems that everyone's facing, but there's kind of a common source. So I've been thinking a lot about that as well, but ultimately feeling you know, a sense of oneness with the world. I feel that this whole COVID situation has definitely proven to me how resilient we all are as a society and as individuals because no matter the situation we do come up with ways to overcome it and even if we don't come up with ways to overcome it we try to manage the downsides and and really mitigate them to the extent possible and i think that is just something that gives me so much hope and kind of resolve to work towards the betterment our society, our planet, and uh, these kind of uh, events are also reinforcing how it's easy to build your own little bubble and you know stay in that and not get out of it because it it becomes kind of like a comfort zone. And I just hope that people don't get too comfortable with just using technology and digital connections for their day-to-day -day lives. I think it's it's quite essential to just, you know, stay human, stay connected. You're listening to Sprouts, radio from the grassroots, a weekly program bringing you local radio productions of national interest. This week, we bring you What's Inside, a podcast that chronicles unscripted monologues of people during lockdown. We are Emma and Max Strebel, sheltering in place in Sonoma County. Well, the coolest thing by far has been how I've been getting my work done. Because at the beginning of this online school thing, it was insane. It, I, I just couldn't get really anything done, you know? I take my, my meds, my, like, Focalin, you know, it helps me you know, with my ADHD so that I can focus on my work. And I just sit at my kitchen table and I would get nothing done. 
and then I'd go to my phone and I'd open an app and I'd play a game and then I'd go into my den and I'd watch TV for an hour or something. It, I, I really was just so totally, completely unproductive. And then after a while, my teachers would like, um, they like would email me and they'd be like, are you okay? Are you dead? You normally are a fine upstanding student and I haven't gotten work from you in like a week. Are you okay? And I would shoot back like, yeah, totally, I'm fine, you know, just adjusting. And that happened for about like two weeks until finally I realized that, like, you know, I had to do something. My school is pass or fail this semester because of COVID-19, but even so, I mean, I, I needed to get work done. So eventually I came up with the idea of working at this gazebo that is like across from my house because I realized that what was really keeping me from getting work done is this environment. I was so used to not working in my apartment and it's been going really well actually. But since I've been doing work outside, I've sort of just been like climbing to a hill and laying down. I had this like great hour and I finished pretty much all of my work for the day and just sort of lie down on this hill. It was really sunny. I listened to music on my headphones and it was just like really warm. And I cannot think of a single time since I was like four or something that I had ever just sort of like laid down outside and not worried about like bugs and stuff. And that that was really cool and I don't know, something that definitely would have never happened. So this really came at a great time for me. This might not be super inspiring for others to hear, but uh, I feel like I was really lucky. I mean, I'm still getting through what I need to get through in terms of school. It's not like I'm going to have to spend another year of my life in high school that I wouldn't have normally. So yeah, I, I don't think this is really going to impact me much. I know f I have friends who aren't able to go to their prom now, who aren't able to do graduation. I feel bad for them. The juniors are just freaking out about taking online AP exams, which from what I've heard sucks so much. But um, yeah, I guess I just feel really fortunate that it's not going to have any long-term impacts. And if it does have a long-term impact, I think the most, for me personally, it'll have is, you know, people my age, I'll just be like, remember that one year that we just did not leave our houses? And I'm just gonna be like, yeah, that was crazy. During this time of social distancing, we're connecting to people from around the world to share personal stories that reveal our universal experience. This is what's inside. So in mid-March, when everything went on lockdown, of course the gym closed. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to get a fat ass during this situation. That's just not going to happen to me. So I decided, since I live in a really beautiful neighborhood that I would just walk. I would do a really rigorous walk every morning. And one of the first days that I embarked on my walk, I came upon a beautiful, prolific jasmine bush. And I thought, oh, how nice. Let me just take a few little vines and how nice that'll be in my kitchen, how beautiful it will smell and it'll make me happy. And literally from that first day, pruning that jasmine bush, um, that's like when it started. And at first I was just kind of picking a few along the way and stuffing them in my fanny pack and kind of wrestling a little bit with trying to get something off, like to snap it off. And sometimes it just doesn't snap. And so I was like twisting and turning and it was taking a long time. and. I was obviously paranoid in the beginning. I was watching to see if the owner might drive up of the property. 
I would look left and right. I didn't want somebody walking their dog to see me like taking flowers from someone's yard. So I sort of realized that I had a pretty big problem when I started including scissors in my fanny pack so that I could snip quickly. I've gotten really good at it. I want you to know that I do not take the last rosebud. I look for abundant patches and I think of it as pruning. I'm just snipping off a little something that is letting the light shine down below on those buds that need to come forth. But um, my obsession with picking and pruning flowers has really gotten out of hand because I mean, I'm pretty much snipping every day, no matter where. My annoyance now at like a gardener being in front of a place that I kind of snip from gets me irritated. Or if someone's hanging out on their cell phone in front of a spot where I know I can snatch a few buds, it's annoying. So it's it's kind of, um, it's become quite something. And I feel a little bit like it must be like, to be an accomplished shoplifter where maybe you steal a little something once and you get away with it and then you just kind of develop a habit that could get out of control, could really get out of control. But it's kind of saved me. It's kind of kept my brain on straight in the morning because I come home with my bounty and I have like kind of mason jars, little jars, small containers with the exploding beautiful um, treasures and gems. And I snip the stems off the bottom of the ones from the prior days. And I switch out the water because I know they're thirsty and they want clean water and it lasts a lot longer. It's kept me grounded in my kitchen and in my house. I really look at the stolen flowers as nurturing and again I don't think of it as stealing I think of it as um, pruning and keeping my neighbor's gardens healthy and alive thanks for joining us in response to the rise of the COVID pandemic which has forced us to socially distance these are reflections on being alone together this is what's inside Around six weeks into the pandemic, I had just ended a very bad relationship. It had just come to an explosive end. And I found myself sleeping on the couch so that my 14-year-old dog would not cry through the night. Lou and I, Lou is my dog, we were kind of doing battle at night. I would go to bed in my room. He would go to bed in the, his bed in the living room. And anywhere from 10 minutes after I got in bed to two hours, he would stand in the hallway and plaintively cry. And so every night I was going out and trying to get him to come to my room or to get him to go to sleep. And I ended up on the couch and I was scrambling for a pillow and a blanket and you know, trying to figure out a way to make the couch comfortable so I could sleep next to Lou. And then I realized this is a pattern and I should get used to it. So I started to make up the couch with a blanket and a pillow so that when Lou summoned me with his cry in the hallway, I would be prepared. And I would, instead of getting really angry and frustrated with him, I would acknowledge the cry. I would come out to the hallway and I would end up sleeping on the couch next to him. And so one night after sleeping on the couch with my dog, Lou, I woke up, my back was sore, but my first waking thought, which was accompanied by tears was, I'm really lonely. And I think someone should take care of me or be worried about me, but there was no one. So I had to worry about myself. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in listening to more voices, 
You can hear more of our daily podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram at What's Inside Podcast. This is What's Inside. The biggest offering that this time has given me is a much uh, recuperated relation with time. This was uh, the relation between time and space and as space got contained in confinement, I felt the expansion of time. And this is probably my greatest pleasure given by this time, to be able to own the time, my time, my time of being alive and conscious on this wonderful planet, given it its proper tempo in accordance with who I am. It felt like I could finally give each of my tasks, each of my endeavor, each of my practices, the way I cooked my meals, the time I took to have conversations, the moments of contemplations, each one was claimed by my own tempo. And that was such a pleasure. I want to maintain that rhythms that provides me with respect to myself very important is the necessity of taking every day, every single day of my life, as much time as I can, and every day a little more in order to just be there, in order to just sit, in order to just go out, walk in nature, breathe, move, sense, let You're listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM and streaming on the web, kboo.fm. I'm Don Jacobson, and moving on, we'll be here in just a few minutes right after the news.